There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocks for beginners. A lot of times for uh, when you're thinking about technical analysis, it's not just about analyzing one particular chart, but it's, it's knowing which chart you should be looking at, right? At any given moment, as an equity investor in the US, in Australia, anywhere, you have literally tens of thousands of stocks that you could buy or sell in any given moment. So I think the game is not necessarily, can you analyze this chart correctly? That's a lot of times the easy part. The question is, what chart should I be looking at? Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Are you a visual person? How can you look at all the data available in the stock market in a way that makes sense? Today, I'm speaking with David Keller on these and many other matters. Hello, David. Hey, Phil. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. David Keller, CMT, is Chief Market Strategist at StockCharts.com, where he helps investors minimise behavioural biases through technical analysis. He's a frequent host on StockCharts TV, and he relates mindfulness techniques to investor decision-making in his blog, The Mindful Investor. But before we started that, I wanted to see how a classically trained musician became involved in the stock market. (laughs) Right. So I always tell people I have a bit of a non-traditional path into the industry, um, but somehow studying music uh, really equipped me well to study uh, the investment universe. And I'll, I'll explain why. When I was uh, studying music, I was at uh, the Ohio State University in, uh, in Ohio, and I basically was focusing on orchestral conducting. So you stand in front of a group of 100 musicians, you glance down at a piece of music and you're trying to get them all to perform and in some emotional state in a similar way. You glance down at a piece of music and you immediately have to assess all sorts of things. You have to understand, you know, what uh, where the melody is, what the harmony is. You have to understand who's leading and who's kind of following along that, you know, that theme. And based on your knowledge of musical history, you have to understand or anticipate what's probably coming next because it's all about you know, how that style is uh, set to be performed. And when I learned that there was a toolkit called technical analysis that would basically allow you to analyze investor behavior using charts and visualizations, the first time I saw a price chart, it felt like I was looking at an orchestral score somehow. And I, I, I somehow I felt that it, uh, I, I, I had training as a uh, conductor to actually study the market. So I, it, it was a transition that was way more uh, easy than I thought. And obviously, there's a big musical or a big mathematical component in music as well. And with finance, with investing, there certainly is, of course, as well. Yeah, I can really relate to that. I mean, I'm from a sound engineering background originally. And for me, when I'm looking at charts, what I'm thinking about is uh, a mixing console in front of me and uh, how that kind of re- relates. I, I, I can really understand how that those wheels kind of turn in your head when you're looking at price charts. That's exactly right. And, and, and I think that the thinking about market history is another one. I mean, a lot of what I do, I feel like, is is serving as a market historian. What tends to happen in the summer months in the U.S.? Why does May through October tend to be seasonally weak? Why does the market tend to bottom in a certain time of the year? 
you know, with where we're at right now, what's happened when interest rates have gone up, when inflation is uh, is a concern, when the Fed has been very accommodative and then changes. And, and a lot of that is by looking at market history and actually seeing what the market has done in different bull and bear cycles. So that that uh, sort of market historian hat combined with analyzing the information has served me pretty well, I feel like. So is there a Baroque period of uh, market action? <laughs> Now that's a great question. I you probably could. That's a, that's a book that I will write, Phil, and and I will give you credit for that idea up front. Different <laughs> um, market periods related to musical peers. There may be something there. So just a little bit about your background and history. You worked at what was known as the legendary Fidelity chart room. What mm. made it legendary? Yeah. So uh, is there a plaque? Is there a plaque on the door or anything? <laughs> yeah, there, there is a lot of great history in that space, and and Fidelity, um, you know, the the technical research team is one of the largest in the world. Um, I had I had thirteen analysts that worked for me when I was uh, when I was there, two thousand eight to two thousand sixteen, and technical analysis was very much part of the culture of Fidelity, and so the money managers, you know, really appreciated the value of fundamental analysis and quantitative analysis, and very importantly, technical analysis and, and having an awareness of market sentiment and investor psychology. So the chart room was literally a physical repository of market history. It was a, it was a space dedicated to data visualization, to understanding and appreciating the lessons of market history and, and taking a step back from what I would call the flickering ticks of the market, the short termism that we often get drawn into and really respecting the longer term trends. And so I was able to go through there with a lot of really successful investors, Fidelity money managers and, and many others. And when you think about the decisions that had been made with that as the uh, as the setting for that, it was humbling and really, really fun to uh, to use that space to try to make better decisions. The market has many forces acting upon it. And um, fund managers, for example, their imperative is to make quarterly returns as opposed to what long-termer investors are looking at or other kinds of investors is that the, that kind of short-term noise is not part of what they are looking at in the, in investing. Mm. I don't know where this question was going, but I'll throw that thought to you. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a challenge, I, I think, for a lot of investors and particularly for money managers and, and companies, right? I mean, you're, if you're managing a, a, a big conglomerate, you know, there's a lot of pressure to have a quarterly earnings number that looks pretty good. And, you know, the quarterly discussion, the quarterly earnings call is a big thing. Same with uh, money managers. You have a quarterly call with, uh, you know, with investors or with uh, key shareholders. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of those discussions that I sat in on. We're trying to relate what we saw in the short term with the bigger picture and understanding more of the three year, five year, 10 year trajectory, which is where a lot of the shareholders, a lot of individual investors are really trying to perform well. That's the time frame that they're working on. And I think that's one of the challenges with the financial industry. There's so much that is drawn to the short term market movements, particularly financial media. There's such an urgency to every little data point because that makes it engaging and exciting. In reality, investing, if done well, should be boring a lot of the times. I, I've often told people, I think one of the biggest uh, you know, um, mistakes is that words like investing and trading imply taking some sort of action, right? I trade means I actually push buy or sell. In reality, investing should be a lot of thinking and strategizing and relating things and 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 structuring an investment process and less on actually buying and selling. I, I think a lot of times doing nothing is probably the best option for investors. So let's talk about data visualization and technical analysis. And of course, being a stock market 
podcast, I'm always talking with guests who are bringing up Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett and the fundamental kind of people. So can you just give us a little brief overview of what technical analysis is as opposed to fundamental analysis? Absolutely. So, you know, if you think about what you're what you're looking at when you're looking at a company fundamentally, right, you're looking at the earnings, you're looking at the potential growth in earnings, you're looking at financial statements, you're looking at quarterly data to understand how the company is doing and, and thinking about the ability of the management team to grow earnings or to, you know, grow the business over time and how they're going to be able to do that. What technical analysis does is it doesn't look at the company, it looks at the stock. The argument is that the price behavior of individual stocks and broadly speaking of ETFs and broad market indexes, that there's value in understanding price and, 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 and analyzing price over time because price should be a reflection of investor psychology, right? If all of us are optimistic about a particular company at a particular moment, we are all incentivized or all motivated to buy. That demand causes the price to go higher. So all I'm doing by analyzing price is trying to quantify that investor behavior, understanding if fear or greed is dominating, if investors are optimistic or pessimistic, if they're excited, euphoric, desperate, despondent, Charts arguably sort of uh, illustrate that, right? It's a way of quantifying the behavior of individual investors into a broader aggregate that actually changes the value of stocks and ETFs. So some of the early and, and really the practitioners that promoted and, uh, and popularized technical analysis are people like John Murphy and Martin Pring, and they're even predecessors before that, like Gann and Elliott and Jesse Livermore, you know, they re- and, and before that, Charles Dow, who's really, you know, considered the grandfather of technical analysis, you know, they basically um, promoted this concept that you can analyze price and by doing that, make inferences or, or, or draw conclusions about the overall strength or weakness of a particular asset. And I, I commend listeners read Jesse Livermore. I mean, it's a very old, very old book, but to hear how the stock market used to run in those bucket shops, <laughs> it, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, dramatically different from today. In, in many ways, though, very, very similar, right? If you think of the cycles of fear and greed that he talks about in those books, you're still seeing it in a very computerized format in 2022. But a lot of those lessons still hold up, I think. Many people, when they think of technical analysis, they've, they've got the charts with, they've got the candlesticks, and then there's all these lines moving all over it, and people drawing lines from here and there. And I think a lot of people think, well, you know, you could just draw those lines anywhere. But let's just talk about a couple of the simplest lines, which are moving averages. Can you describe what moving averages are? Yes. And, and I appreciate your question, Phil. The, the phrasing of your question, there's a lot of wisdom in there. I think a lot of, excuse, particularly newer investors, try to overcomplicate things. They try to put a lot of data, a lot of information. And if you look at the charts and, and, and think about the, the charts that, uh, you know, that, that myself or others that use, they're very straightforward, right? It's more about understanding trend. And if you overcomplicate it, it's actually very hard to, to, to quantify trends very well. Um, moving averages are one of the classic parts of the technical toolkit. And, and the reality is day-to-day movements in assets, in any asset, equities, commodities, currencies, cryptocurrencies are very noisy, right? The day-to-day minute-to-minute movement of any, any market is going to be noisy because there are all these buyers and sellers coming together at random times in different places. And as a result, things fluctuate dramatically. What technical analysis really tries to help you do is step away from that noise and think about how the trends are evolving. 
So if you're looking at a daily closing price of an equity or of an ETF, you are getting the change or the, the daily movements. The moving averages sort of take that trend over a longer period of time. So a 50-day moving average is literally an average of the last 50 closing prices. And that average moves along every trading day. And that's why it's called a, a moving average. If you ignore the day-to-day -day price and just look at the 50-day moving average, you will be able to tell whether the trend is positive or negative based on whether that moving average is sloping higher or lower. Is the average trend increasing or decreasing? And in general, owning stocks in ETFs where the price is above their moving average versus below will immediately have you in things that have been performing well and out of things that are underperforming. And a lot of times that basic kind of assessment can help, I think, a lot of individual investors make sure that you're in things that are showing strength and leaning away from things that are showing weakness. Moving averages are a great way to make that basic assessment. Another technical analyst I've had on the program talks about looking at a chart from across the room and you should be able to, mm. the trend should be clear enough that you can see it from 10 feet away. I love that. One of the uh, one of the uh, anal technical analysts I used to follow that sadly is no longer with us. He, he was elderly. He was in his seventies when I when I last met him. He came to visit us in Boston, and he took off his glasses and he said, "I like trends that I don't need my glasses to see." <laughs> that's that's a that's a great uh, you know similar reaction, I, and I think that's absolutely right. I always coach my viewers take a step back away from your monitor. What what happens, I think, for a lot of people, if you just look physically, ergonomics aside, when you're looking at a chart, you immediately start leaning into the monitor, right? You're almost drawing in and getting, what you're doing is getting closer and closer to the noise. I always tell people, take a step back and just really think about how this thing has, has moved over time. Instead of looking at, you know, six months, look at six years and really look at how trends are evolving. That's how you really understand how things are changing and how markets are rotating, which I think for a lot of investors is the game. It's the rotation in and out of different themes and different charts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What would you recommend for a listener coming and opening up a chart for the first time? And, okay, they, they put in a code and then they're presented with all this data on the screen. How would you recommend them starting to work out a way of looking at it so it's a bit more meaningful? Once you bring up, once you bring up the chart, you're, you're absolutely right. I think um, a, a lot of times what I would encourage people to do is start with price, right? The analysis of price is really where it starts. And I always tell people, start with where we're at now and look to the left. Where are we at relative to where we've been? And a lot of technical analysis is driven off of that understanding of where we're at now relative to where we've been. Are we in a position of strength? Are we in a position of weakness? Are we trending higher or lower? And Charles Dow, you know, over a hundred years ago, late 19th century, was talking about the value of looking at trends and measuring them going higher by looking at highs and lows. Are the, are, the, are the high prices trending higher? Are the low prices trending lower? And making that basic assessment will make sure that you're in things that are working and that you're not in things that are not working. I know at Stock Charts, we have a whole section of our website called Chart School, which is trying to help 
newer investors that are less familiar with the technical toolkit really appreciate and understand where it starts. And it starts with price. And then there are all sorts of different things you can do to better quantify investor behavior, measuring trend characteristics, measuring momentum, how strong a price is moving, um, looking at a particular stock relative to other stocks, which is called relative strength. There are all sorts of other tools you can bring to bear to better um, align your technical analysis with the questions you're trying to answer as an investor. Uh, but it starts with an analysis of, uh, of price and really thinking about simple measurements of trend. And that's where I encourage people to start. And what about the going back to moving averages? That idea, I know one of the simplest indicators is the is it the 20-day over the 50-day moving average mm-hmm. and that, that they cross. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, so there are a number of different moving average techniques, and you're, you're talking about a really simple one, which is called the moving average crossover technique, right? Looking at different moving averages and when they cross above or below one another. Longer term investors tend to look at things like the 50 day and the 200 day, which is looking more of a, you know, about a quarter and about a year, a little less than that, but that's kind of what it was trying to do. Shorter term investors, the five versus the 20 day, the 20 day versus the 50 day, and those combinations and which ones are right for you depend on what time frame, what, what your investment horizon is, right? So if you're a position trader or a swing trader or a long-term investor in a retirement account, your charts that you use in terms of the types of moving averages, even the time frames, am I looking at hourly data versus weekly or monthly data should all be aligned with the with the uh, time frame that you're trying to invest on. So question number one should be for you. What am I trying to do? What are my goals with my portfolio? And then make sure the charts, the techniques that you're using are in line with those goals. A lot of times there's a mismatch and then you can be making incorrect decisions because you're basing it off of the wrong time frame. What are the mindfulness techniques that you espouse? Thanks so much for asking that. And, and a lot of the uh, the techniques that I use and have used over time in my work at Stock Charts and my own firm called uh, Sierra Alpha Research, it's all based on what I've learned flying airplanes. It's all based on aviation. As a student pilot, I used to talk with my instructor about how we applied lessons in the air, right? What we were trying to do flying the airplane versus what we were trying to do as investors. And there's so many similarities to it. And a lot of the techniques that uh, that I uh, talk about are what I would call behavioral investing or mindful investing. A, what I think of as a mindful investor is paying attention to the evidence. When you're flying an airplane, you learn to trust your instruments. You learn to look around the cockpit and and understand the information and pay attention to the information that um, that you're that you're seeing there. And it's really what's called situational awareness. It's understanding where you're at relative to your surroundings. I find a lot of times investors kind of put the blinders on. They have a particular position or a particular stock or ETF that they're focused on, and they forget to take a step back and look at what's happening around them as investors. Mindfulness for me means having an awareness, centering yourself mentally, but also having a good awareness of what's happening around you. And that's where I feel like charts, technical analysis can be really, really helpful. If there's a toolkit that's designed really optimized to help you understand the world around you. I think charts are a really good way to uh, do that. So I think mindful investors pay attention to their surroundings as investors. A lot of times for uh, when you're thinking about technical analysis, it's not just about analyzing one particular chart, but it's, it's knowing which chart you should be looking at, right? In any given moment as an equity investor in the US, in Australia, anywhere, you have literally tens of thousands of stocks that you could buy or sell in any given moment. So I think the game is not necessarily, can you analyze this chart correctly? 
That's a lot of times the easy part. The question is, what charts should I be looking at? So there's a whole set of screening tools that you can use. And I think charts are a really good way. Technical analysis is a great way of trying to look on an apples to apples basis among thousands of charts to try to figure out where are the actionable ideas. So if you if you think about particular conditions, you know, I'm looking for stocks that are breaking to new highs. I'm looking for stocks that have been beaten down and are now starting to show signs of accumulation. Using the best practices of technical analysis, you can you know, very simply code that sort of behavior into a scan. And then, all right, let me find a bunch of stocks that have been beaten down and are now starting to improve. Charts that have been out of favor and are now in favor. And I think by applying those techniques consistently, and that's the real key, it's having a consistent routine you can find good opportunities. For me, one of the things I often scan for are stocks making new three-month highs and stocks making new three-month lows. I look at that list multiple times every week, and it helps me to really understand the changing dynamics uh, of a market environment. And, and of course, if you're looking for those lows, you're in danger of catching a falling knife. So you're actually, I'm assuming, looking for other indicators. I think you mentioned accumulation to show that um, yes. uh, you just don't well, want to catch I, it. I would, yeah. That's exactly right. I was, I was taught that prices go down for a reason. So if, you, if you're looking for something and the price keeps going down, you have to remember that a stock doesn't just go from 50 to 40 to 30 to 20 for no reason, right? There's a reason why the price is going lower. So I often look for what I call signs of accumulation or a bottoming pattern, right? Um, you know, very simply, a, a downtrend is a pattern of lower lows and lower highs. So when that trend is in place, when the stock keeps making lower lows and then when it bounces higher, it doesn't eclipse the previous high, that's a chart in a downtrend. Look for that to change. Look for a stock making a higher low. Look for a stock making a higher high. Uh, in the U.S. right now, the chart of Apple comes to mind as a great illustration of that. In a clear downtrend in the first half of 2022, starting in June, it stopped making a lower low and started making a higher low. Um, it made a, a lower high in June and all of a sudden has made a higher high now, July into August. So recognizing those trend changes uh, a lot of times is the most important, uh, most important question I think investors should be trying to answer. And kind of implicit in what you were saying there as well, and something I firmly believe is that the price of a stock doesn't care about your feelings. <laughs> that is that is very very well said, Phil. Phil, and I would say one hundred percent that's true. Um, you know, and and and, it, and it's funny. It, it is so easy for us to react in a very emotional, very visceral, very physical way. Um, when something moves against us, right? When you make a trade and it stops working and the price is moving against you and you're losing money on paper, it is very normal and understandable to have a physical, you know, your, your palms start sweating and you get uncomfortable with it. I think what successful investors do, just like successful pilots, is learn to separate their emotional reaction from their actual, right, their, the, the action that they take and make decisions based on the weight of the evidence and less on the weight of your emotions. If you can do that, I think you've done a great job. You're winning the game emotionally and, and, and mentally if you can separate your emotional reaction from the evidence that you're seeing. And what are your thoughts on candlesticks? There's a lot of people who put a lot of thought and meaning into what candlesticks will mean. You know, there's different shapes and, you know, there's hammers and... Very much so. Yeah, candlesticks are a whole uh, set of techniques. And it's really, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, it's a different way of 
Uh, you know, normal uh, in the in the West, we often look at price bars, right? Bar charts, which is a bar representing the open, high, low, and close. Candlesticks are just a different way of visualizing that. It's a much more visual form of analysis, right? Because up days- Perhaps before we go on, you should explain what a candlestick actually is. Sure. So so a bar chart, you basically have a vertical line, which tells you the high and the low trade for every day or whatever time frame you're looking at. Candle charts tell you, tell you the same thing. I have a vertical line, uh, which tells you the high and the low. The body of the candle is what's different. So on a bar chart, you have a tick to the left, which is the opening price, and a tick to the right, which is the closing price. So it's easy to see one individual day, but it's actually a little harder when you look at a large amount of data to visually recognize up days and down days because it all just kind of gets jumbled together. Candle charts, the body of the candle tells you the open and the close. Um, an up day is a clear candle or an open candle. And I always tell people, think of it like a um, a balloon that's filled with helium, so it's floating up. So you opened at the bottom of the candle and you closed at the top of the candle. A solid candle or a darker candle is something that closed down on the day. So think of it as like a rock sinking down into a pool. So you opened at the top of the candle and closed at the bottom of the candle. Um, it is a Japanese form of analysis. And if you talk to Japanese technical analysts or investors, and I've, I've been fortunate to travel to Japan a number of times and talk with real expert practitioners in candlestick analysis, and they will tell you that it is really a visual form of analysis. You look at how the market has changed based on the configuration, the shapes of the candles jump out. Now, you alluded to some of the names. There are some very exotic names when you get to candlestick analysis, things like abandoned baby and doji candles and three white knights and three black crows. And I always tell people, focus less on the exotic name nomenclature and focus on what they're telling you about the intraday dynamics. What we saw this week, actually, in the U.S. are a lot of uh, doji candles um, and a lot of what are called shooting star candles. Doji candles, when the open and close are right about at the same level, and it represents indecision, right? We open at a certain point, we trade around there, but we close right at the same level. So we, we didn't go anywhere. So it represents that in, investors are sort of at an equilibrium. A shooting star candle is when you open, you trade higher, but you close back at the lows. And think about what that means when the stock is going higher but then this one day you open higher, but instead of closing higher, you actually close back at the lows of the day. And it represents some distribution forces going on uh, during the trading day. So I actually do use candlesticks a lot when I'm trying to understand the short term dynamics behind a particular chart. And I think it's a very fantastic visual way of representing uh, trader psychology and supply and demand in the short term. And it's quite an ancient technique, isn't it? It's been around for hundreds of years in um, rice farming trading in Japan, which, which is where it came from. Yes. So there are actually a whole the, the, the whole history of uh, technical analysis in Japan, very different than what we've seen in the in the U.S. Our modern technical analysis was really born in the late 1800s, early 1900s. In Japan, it goes back to the 1600s, if I remember right. And uh, we have uh, evidence of uh, of rice traders back at that time using a, a simplistic form of candlestick analysis to actually understand the movements in the uh, in the rice markets. Um, and it's fascinating how those same techniques still in 2022 are a beautiful visualization of supply and demand. And I think, you know, the lessons like that, um, you mentioned Jesse Livermore earlier. I think one of the great things about technical analysis, it is a form of analysis that predates quantitative analysis certainly predates fundamental analysis and was a way for individual investors to get an edge and understand what was happening. And I think that still holds water uh, here in the, in the 2020s. Well, we'll put some links in the blog post for this episode as well to some of your videos and so forth, which um, listeners can go more in depth in. But I had a, a list of points here that I wanted to talk about because they just seemed just the, the titles seemed interesting. Mm. What is the endowment 
effect. Yes. Yeah, so a whole separate part of what I do is is what's called behavioral finance, which are mm. basically categorizing investor behavior. Yeah, which we're kind of jumping in between technical and uh, and behavior. Yeah, that's right. But I but I, I would argue that technical analysis and charts are a great way of managing a lot of these behavioral biases. What it, the endowment bias that you mentioned? What it basically is is you have an emotional attachment to something that you own. So in the investment world, we talk about a stock, right? You take a position, and now you're emotionally connected to that position. So let's say the position starts losing money, right? You're losing that in that position, but you feel an emotional attachment as a result. You're more likely to hold on to it longer than you should, not because the evidence tells you you should, but because of an emotional connection to that, to that position. I think charts, and you mentioned things like moving averages, things like price trend, candlestick analysis, well, all those things should be doing is telling you when the evidence changes, when a position that has been working is no longer working. And what that should do is help you disconnect from that emotional uh, bias, that, that endowment bias, and, and recognize when the evidence has shifted and, and, and be bold enough and courageous enough to take action despite your emotional attachment to a particular theme, a particular thesis, or a particular position. Classical technical analysis always refers to different patterns appearing on the chart, like mm. you know heads and shoulders and um, pennants yeah. and things like that. Um, is that what you're uh, taking into account as well? Absolutely. So the, the technical toolkit is broad and, there are, and, and diverse, and, and there are a lot of different techniques uh, under there. I think growing as a technical analyst over the last 22 years, um, you sort of develop your own toolkit. You find things that you tend to gravitate toward. I would say certain price patterns we absolutely keep uh, attention to. You mentioned the head and shoulders uh, pattern, which, to be honest with you, was one of the first patterns where there was academic research. It was in the 1980s, I feel like. There's a, a paper by Carol Osler talking about the head and shoulders pattern in the currency markets. And that was a great actual predictor of what was coming next. And all that does, head and shoulders patterns and others, what they do is they recognize the trend, not just one individual day or one individual moment, but how the trends actually evolve over time. And what a head and shoulders top really is, is a market's going higher and higher. And all of a sudden you put in a lower high. So instead of making new highs, all of a sudden buyers are exhausted a little bit. There's less buying power and less uh, potential for the market to go higher. And breaking down from that pattern is often a great illustration that there's a change of character and that uh, the trend is uh, starting to go lower. It's something, if you flip that over, it's called a head and shoulders bottoming pattern. I think for a lot of US-based investors, that's where you're looking opportunistically in the US markets. Are you finding head and shoulders bottoming pattern in some of the growth areas of the market, like technology, consumer discretionary, which had really been deteriorating through the course of 2022, but now June, July, August, starting to uh, show rotations to the upside. Okay, jumping back to behavioral now. Yeah. The narrative effect, what is that? Yeah, so the, the narrative effect is a, is a brilliant one. And if you think about it, I always like to share the example of buying a car. Most of us have bought a car at some point in our lives. And what happens, right? When you go to a car dealer, they don't start just telling you details about the vehicle. Here's the size of the engine. Here's your fuel efficiency. What they want to do is get you behind the wheel. They want you to test drive because the moment you get behind the wheel, you are connected to the idea of the car. It's no longer the price tag. It's no longer the implications of the fuel efficiency or the performance of the vehicle. You're picturing yourself in the car and they are building a narrative for you. You're no longer buying a physical piece of machinery. You're buying the idea of you owning the car. And that's what they wanna get you to, that narrative. As investors, we do the same thing. We create this narrative. 
Interest rates are going higher, which means that probably means the Fed is doing this. And that most likely means X, Y, Z for this bank that I'm looking at or these commodities or the dollar or the Aussie dollar, whatever it is that you're interested in. And that's a good thing if it helps you think about different scenarios. The problem is the narrative effect is we tend to get way too tied to that narrative. All of a sudden, when the evidence starts to change, we're still so emotionally connected to that narrative. It's hard for us to disconnect. So what I often uh, suggest to people to minimize this bias is to thinking about different scenarios. If you're bullish on stocks right now, list out the bear case, literally get a piece of paper and lay out what would cause this market to be more bearish, right? What would I need to see on key stocks, on currencies, on ETFs that would tell me the, the position or, or the, the conditions are changing? And in my days at Fidelity, we would literally do this. We'd have a bull bear meeting where some of the analysts would have to argue the bull case on a particular chart. The other group would have to argue the bear case. And we did that simply to force ourselves to think about different scenarios. Institutional investors never think of certainties. You always think about probabilities. Here's what I think is most likely to happen, but here are the other three things that I think could happen. And you think about all those potential paths and what your portfolio would do in those scenarios and what action you should take now to minimize the risk of, uh, you know, if one of those other scenarios happen. I find individual investors get way caught up in a narrative. You think of one absolute thing and that's it. Make sure you stretch yourself and think about some uh, alternative scenarios. It's, this is interesting. I was talking to a fund manager just a couple of days ago. They look at a distribution curve of possible outcomes. And I know that's not strictly technical analysis, but it speaks to what you're talking about and how professional money managers are looking ahead and saying, well, okay, the, the price could go up here, but you know, it could also go down here as well. And then again, because they've got a whole team of people, they're all arguing with each other and <laughs> looking at scenarios. And that's what you really need for your investing thesis is to have argument and people challenging your ideas. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I, I would say my experience as an institutional investor, it was not quiet. It was noisy. There was a lot of debate and discussion. That was a, that was a common practice was jump into someone else's office and just debate something. You think gold's going up or down and why? And we would challenge each other's thesis. Um, and any times you would present a, an investment thesis to a group, you would expect aggressive pushback at times, pushing back on your assumptions. And I find for individual investors, there's not an, enough of that. To the contrary, I would say the rise in social media has made it way worse on the other side. Social media, particularly if you use Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is, as an investor, the moment that you like things or that you you know tell the algorithm that you like a certain point of view... All it does, it becomes an echo chamber. They try to give you more and more of that thing. So if I look at my Twitter feed right now, after years of liking growth-oriented technical investors, it's an echo chamber for my own thesis, right? And so what you have to do is actually search for the opposite. So if I'm bullish on stocks, I search for bearish arguments to try to see what people are seeing and thinking that causes them to draw another conclusion. So social media is great in terms of the access that you get to some very successful investors and, and many that you may not have ever heard of before without social media. But I would say the detriment of social media to an individual investor is that a lot of times it'll be an echo chamber for something you already think. And you really want to look for things that challenge your thesis, look for alternate points of view. They're out there, but you have to do a little work to find them. All right, Dave. So uh, I'm going to put all the links in the episode notes and in the blog post as well. But just give us a quick overview about how listeners can find out more about you and about stock charts. 
Yeah, it's such a pleasure to, to chat with you, Phil. And thanks so much for the for the opportunity. Um, stockcharts.com is our, our main website, and we offer free trials to people that aren't familiar with the service. I would encourage people to start with the free part of our site, which is called Chart School. There, you have a lot of free charts that you can use, of course, but Chart School really teaches you how to make better decisions. And I would encourage you uh, to do that. We're also on YouTube, and my I host a closing bell show called The Final Bar. If you go to the Stock Charts YouTube channel, you can see all of my previous episodes uh, going back for uh, for a number of years. And of course, we'll put all those in the episode notes and blog posts, as I said. Dave Keller, thank you very much for coming and joining me today. It's a pleasure, Phil. And thank you for what you're doing to empower newer investors and individual investors to make better decisions. I, uh, I hope they are listening to the wisdom that you're sharing with them. <laughs> you're giving me undue respect, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, mate. See ya. It's a pleasure. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.